Hello and welcome to this special podcast in a series of things this week that we're bringing you on the government's plans for civil service reform and our commentary on it. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Someone who has been thinking about the government's plans for civil service reform is Bernard Jenkin, Conservative MP and Chairman of the Liaison Committee. That's the committee that brings together Commons Select Committee chairs. And he wrote for us this week on the consequences for Whitehall after coronavirus. And earlier this week, he spoke to our colleague Alex Thomas, who has also written him a repost. So Bernard Jenkin, I think it's fair to say that you've thought about the civil service more than most MPs. You were chair of the Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee and its predecessor committee, the Public Administration Select Committee, which scrutinises the civil service for more than 10 years. Uh, And you published a a stream of reports and uh, thoughts uh, on the civil service uh, as part of that. And your most recent contribution is an article on uh, on the Institute for Government's website uh, about uh, coronavirus and it being a moment of um, enormous importance uh, for the civil service and reform of the civil service. You also said uh, very uh, strikingly to me that uh, the civil service uh, is being lined up as a scapegoat to shield others from blame. Uh, Why do you think that? Well, I think we've seen a bit of it in the last few days, that somehow there's an implied connection between Mark Sedwell's departure and uh, the difficulties the government has had uh, making decisions and understanding what to do. I think that this is a terrible mistake. And I've already heard that permanent secretaries are feeling rather demoralised by this, that um, there are lots of things that have gone wrong, but there should be an open and unblameworthy conversation about why decisions were made and why things turned out as they did so that we can learn from it. Simply getting rid of people means that nobody will want to tell the truth. What do you think Mark Sedwell did wrong? Well, that's not from... I don't think Mark Sedwell did anything wrong. I suspect Mark Sedwell did everything that ministers asked of him. I think there was always going to be some friction around this. I think it's sad that it does not seem that everyone around the Prime Minister has been uh, as strenuously determined to build up trust and confidence between ministers and officials as they should be. If you don't build up trust and confidence with officials, things will not get said that should be said, decisions will not be challenged that should be challenged, more things will go wrong as a consequence. Truth to power is the essence of the civil service, and you do not get truth to power if there's a breakdown of trust, because there is, for example, briefing in the newspapers against officials. I completely agree with that. It's been it's it's not been uh, very uh, edifying. You you talked in your article about the um, sort of timidity of the civil service and lack of confidence. It's almost as if the civil service has to walk a walk a fine line between being sort of too confident and too timid. And that uh, you, you suggest, and I, again, I agree with you on this, that that's not helpful for uh, the culture uh, of, of government or, or good decision making. But I do wonder whether civil servants are really too timid. I wouldn't describe Mark Sedwell as timid. What do you no, do? Um, I, I, I don't wouldn't describe him as timid at all. But um as the relationship between a new, uh, as a new relationship forms between a minister and official or a prime minister and cabinet secretary, the officials are always treading on eggshells because they want to win the trust and confidence of the minister that they're serving, but they also want to be able to tell the truth as they see it. And that's made more difficult if, um, if there's a, a sense that uh, the House view of the civil service is very different from the incoming government. Margaret Thatcher had that problem. She didn't go around sacking cabinet secretaries and permanent secretaries or threatening to make political appointments. Uh, she did bring in ministers and advisers who were very good 
at identifying the right civil servants to promote and at uh, making very clear what the government wanted. The problem is the civil service doesn't perform very well if ministers are divided, if there's disagreements in cabinet, if the direction is unclear, and if the relationship between ministers and officials starts to become a public issue, uh, then that becomes very demoralizing. It's not leadership, and the government needs to show more leadership of the administrative system that, upon which it depends to deliver its policies. And one of the aspects of that leadership is accepting responsibility for the culture that you create. And you touched on it there and uh, and in the article about sort of short-termism and the, uh, you know, the, we might almost say the, the sugar high or sugar rush of, uh, uh, of, of announcements to pick up on a phrase from Michael Gove last, last weekend. What does the political class need to do to change, to get more out of the civil service? First of all, the relationship between ministers and officials has got to become a private one again and not something that's talked about in the papers. Secondly, I think there needs to be more respect for long-term issues. Now, paradoxically, this government, elements in this government, have very, very long-term ambitions. And there should be a synergy between a civil service that doesn't like doing short-term fixes and a government that wants to think about the long-term. So I think there's an opportunity, particularly a government with a big majority, to, to make things work in the way that they haven't been able to work uh, in in recent times, and there's a lot of talk about skills and the civil service having the right skills in this agenda. What what would you prioritise in uh, in in the, the sort of civil service reform classic space? Well, uh, there's quite a lot I, I agree with in um, Michael Gove's Ditchley lecture. Well, I mean, I've lamented this often in past reports that there are too many generalists, not enough specialists, that people aren't allowed to stay in their roles for long enough to become deeply imbued with sub- subject knowledge. And in fact, the career structure of the civil service has become one where you, you churn around lots of different departments and lots of different things in order to enhance your career rather than becoming an expert. And I think um, we need to restore the departmental career structures. So that if you're a DWP civil servant, it's quite likely you'll finish up as a DWP permanent secretary because you really understand DWP. The idea that you can parachute in any permanent secretary to any department and they will do just as good a job as if they had been in that department all their lives seems to me rather odd. And indeed, I came across one appointment recently where the permanent secretary had said, oh, no, we can't have that person in that DG. He knows far too much about it. He loves it too much. We'll have to have somebody different. I mean, that seems to be sort of antithetical uh, to the kind of depth of knowledge that we actually need. It's meant to be a permanent civil service, which has got far more knowledge than the ministers who are floating around over the top. Um, But very often I've known cases where the the Secretary of State has had more experience in the department than the permanent secretary. And there must be meetings where the Secretary of State is explaining to the permanent secretary what the... um, uh, what the what the department has been doing in something, and in fact, that's that's not an uncommon experience amongst ministers who find they have been longer in the job than some of the officials who have responsibility for those policy areas that they're responsible for. I have to say, I, I'm from the from the other side of the uh, the aisle. I certainly experienced that more than uh, more than once or twice in my civil service career. Um, uh, perhaps particularly not at permanent secretary level, but particularly when Jeremy Hunt had been health secretary for uh, sort of record breaking uh, uh, length of time. Um, I would I would pick up one other point from. Uh, Michael Gove's speech, which I really, really welcome. 
Before you do that, um, Bernard, can I just make the obvious, ask the obvious question about expertise? So you, you've agreed with Michael Gove on expertise. You know, I and the IFG completely agree with that. But the the, the obvious, uh, and I apologise for the gotcha question, is is whether you agree with Theresa May on the uh, uh, the wisdom or lack of it of the David Frost appointment as National Security Advisor. Well, I think we need to recognise that David Frost, with the title National Security Advisor, is going to be conducting a very, very different role from his predecessors. Um, it was a relatively new role, originally conceived as a ministerial role, and then it became a permanent secretary role, uh, usually of somebody out of the Foreign Office with security experience. But under David Frost, it is going to be a genuinely much more advisory role. It's obviously a political appointment. He's not appointed as a civil servant, though he's not a minister or a special advisor, a rather hybrid nature of appointment and he's not got a command chain under him he's not going to have the security services reporting to him as sir mark sedwell does at the moment as national security advisor they're going to be reporting to the foreign office and to the home office as they used to in days gone by and through a permanent secretary in the cabinet office uh, in respect of the national security council i don't imagine that the national security advisor will be chairing the joint intelligence committee so it's a very, very different role from what it was. Uh, and the kind of title to appoint someone to that kind of role uh, with a title that he can choose. But let's not kid ourselves, it's the same job as before. With the potential for a bit more confusion than before. Well, look, I, I think it's obvious that he will be a far more personal support to the Prime Minister in the Prime Minister's consideration of these matters than the National Security Advisor became. Uh, in a way, uh, uh, under under the uh, previous civil servants, you were going to make another point about the uh, the the Gove speech. There were rather more moans in the speech than um, uh, than uh, uh, solutions. But one of the outstanding solutions made is that there should be a permanent campus for civil service training. And for many many PASC and PACAC reports, we recommended that the national school for government should be restored in some form um, and that is clearly what we, what we need and clearly it was a mistake to abolish it before it could have been adapted there were many things wrong perhaps with the national school for government as it was but we threw out the baby with the bathwater, and it was a mistake and that was one of uh, i mean a couple of really sort of concrete and specific things in the in the michael gove speech the other was about um moving civil servants out of london and uh, a civil service that reflects the geographical location of of the uk and I, I i would say personally particularly getting more civil servants in scotland working for the uk government is a uh, is you know would, would would be a a good objective for the uh, for the government but it was it was also striking that beyond those two points the Go speech for me was a um, a very interesting sort of comprehensive intellectual grounding for um, civil service reform, um, but not so much other kind of very, very practical stuff. And as you and I both know, the civil service, it's, it's made up of people and it's made up of a thousand, uh, you know, reforming it is a, th is a thousand specific in interventions. So are there, are there big things you think Michael Gove missed in that, in that lecture? I think he misses, uh, and there are very many other good suggestions and perfectly justifiable criticisms, but they've all been long-standing things. And the experience of the Maud reform programme, if you just fix the symptoms, you know, the churn, the lack of subject knowledge, the, um, the, the, the tendency for jargon in submissions, if you just go for these symptoms, you won't actually cure the problem. 
which is, as uh, dare I use that word, culture, by which we mean there are some embedded attitudes and types of behaviour in the civil service that we should be talking about. There are some good ones and there's some, very, there's some not so good ones. And um, if you want to change the culture of an institution, you've got to change the attitude and the behaviour of the people in the institution. I don't think the speech really gives us an idea of what Michael Gove thinks the civil service is as an institution or what he wants it to be as an institution. There's an awful lot about some things that he wants it to do. He wants it to measure things, to enforce contracts more effectively, to be more responsive, to take instructions. But I don't think he um, demonstrates as full an understanding as I think we can all develop about how the civil service should be led. And one of the things the new national schools for government should really concentrate on is developing better civil service leaders, that there is, a, um, I, I would submit, a rather limited culture around leadership in the civil service. And it's about also developing leaders amongst ministers. I, I think ministers should attend the National School for Government and um, learn better to how, how to lead their departments in partnership with their senior officials. Uh, and the idea that you fix all these problems by just making a few more political appointments, um, I think is... First of all, it will be resisted by the civil service, which is uh, very capable of resisting things. Um, and secondly, a few more political appointments wouldn't actually change the culture of the civil service. It might even just reinforce it. Picking up on your points there about, about leadership and about people, I want to just take a moment to think about the, the motivation of civil servants, because I think you're right. This is a, this is a gap in the, in the, in the Gove worldview. One of the criticisms that was made of that lecture was that if you want to motivate and inspire experts and technical scientists, uh, mathematicians, statisticians, they need to have a sense that their advice is going to be listened to. And there is this critique of the government that it, it will sort of talk about these things, but then on the really big issues, it follows its political instincts rather than its um, uh, kind of technical instincts, if you like. Now, of course, the civil service will always accept that there's space for politics and that ministers are there to decide and you go in a particular direction. But do you think there's a risk of demotivating the civil service if the government isn't kind of actively listening to it? If you want the best out of your officials, my understanding is that you have to show your loyalty to them. Um, and you have to show that you are committed to their well-being and, and you value uh, their judgment about things. And then you might disagree with it and you might explain why you disagree with it, but you don't resent uh, being presented with alternatives. Very often, ministers get resentful, I think, when they are presented with objections that they haven't thought of and they feel that the officials are simply resisting what they want to do. And if that atmosphere builds up, I imagine it becomes very difficult for officials and ministers to have conversations that they need to have. This is something that officials and ministers both need to work on. And one of the recommendations we made in our report about entitled The Minister and the Official, The Fulcrum of Effectiveness in Whitehall, which was a, the last PACAC report on the civil service, is that actually when there's a new relationship between a minister and official, there ought to be somebody there to sort of facilitate it and coach it to make sure that... Uh, it speeds up the transition to making that an effective relationship. That very often happens in the private sector. Some people in government are very keen on importing private sector techniques. Uh, in fact, um, our report found that both ministers and officials tend to be very good at adapting to new relationships and understanding new things very quickly, much faster than much more adaptable in the public than in the private sector between, say, a CEO and a new chairman. But there's no reason why that couldn't be accelerated even more. What would take 
perhaps a year or 18 months in the private sector will take perhaps six months in government. But that could be perhaps shortened to uh, three weeks or three months or six weeks with the right kind of facilitation and understanding, particularly where a minister is unfamiliar with how, how Whitehall works. And it's all very well saying, oh, no, it's, what should happen is we should just bring in people from outside who really understand business and have really got a track record. Well, they will have exactly the same problems as ministers. And we've seen it happen, that they come in, they try and make things work. They can't understand why things don't work as they do in the private sector. Francis Maud identified what he called tissue rejection. And the evidence is that the outsiders who've been brought into government have been brought in at a, at a level at which they can still develop. And so someone like Stephen Lovegrove came in from the private sector and finished up as a Bayes secretary, a Bayes permanent secretary, now defence permanent secretary. That's a good model. Another, another good example is um, John Manzoni, yeah. who did his stint at the project agency before becoming permanent secretary in the cabinet office. And it's that um, acclimatisation that people from outside need in order to be effective. I think it's fair to say that the minister who prioritised civil service reform most recently, uh, between 2010 and 2015, was Francis Maud. Uh, what do you think he got right and what do you think he got wrong? Well, I think he identified um, a, a great many things that were frustrating ministers. And uh, he also was visionary in things like the uh, cross-departmental professions and the functional leadership that was implemented across Whitehall um, and the creation, for example, of the digital fast stream. Uh, the uh, cross-cutting folks, so digital, tech, um, um, uh, commercial, uh, finance. Uh, and the, and the Im- implementation of the Crown uh, Commissioners, uh, the, the Crown yeah. Commercial Services, yes. I mean, I think that was all excellent and they will be lasting reforms. Some of the things he wanted to achieve, he did not achieve. And I, I think the maybe the wrong lesson is being learned, that he just didn't have enough power to impose them, impose these changes. I think that would be a mistake. I think the reason some of his changes, for example, around the appointment of permanent secretaries or the durability of enhanced ministerial offices and large ministerial offices, you know, increasing the number of political appointees, basically, um, I think it misunderstands the nature of the relationship between ministers and officials. And it would not solve the problems he's seeking to solve, and such changes will be resisted by a great many people, not just people in the civil service, but people beyond. And you could expend an enormous amount of effort, as he did, trying to get some changes, uh, when it would be so much better to enhance that energy on on making the changes that can really work. Mm-hmm. So just sort of wrapping up, uh, I don't think there's any doubt that Dominic Cummings is is driving a lot of uh, this reform. If you, if you were still chairing PACAC, would you uh, try and summon him to uh, give evidence? And do you think he'd turn up? Well, special advisors uh, uh, advise ministers and people accountable. There is not a, a tradition of inviting special advisors in front of select committees. And I think it would be a very bad thing to start because we, we need to hold ministers accountable. We can't hold special advisors accountable. Ministers are accountable for the conduct of their special advisors, and that's and that's what um, select committees should concentrate on. So, uh, as chair of the uh, liaison committee, you get your you get your shot at the uh, at, at the prime minister. Has he has he confirmed whether he's going to come again before the summer? Uh, no, but um, I'm keeping up the conversation. I've discovered that there are there are two forms of response 
from number 10 in, in response to this question. One is it will be decided in due course. And then the other one is he's coming next week. Um, and there's nothing in between. So we'll just have to be patient. Absolutely right. From my, uh, my, my, when, I, when, I, when I used to write those uh, responses. <laughs> Great. Uh, Sir Bernard Jenkin, thank you very much for your time and for being a guest on this week's podcast. Thank you very much indeed. That was Alex Thomas, Programme Director at the Institute for Government, speaking to Bernard Jenkins.